This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book <coughs> and is number three of the series devoted to the word and doctrine of salvation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture. If you care to join us, would you switch off for a little while and read the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. I'm not sure whether my counting is correct but as we were reading, I was just ticking my Bible where the word faith came in this Galatians chapter 3. And as far as I've gone, there are 15 times that it comes. You see, the apostle wasn't one of those writers who thought he must never say the same word twice and find some other way of getting round it. He hammers away at this word faith from all sorts of directions. And that is partly the subject we are considering this evening. What does it mean when we read in the scriptures that we are saved by faith. You see, if we're not careful, we may put faith as a sort of a meritorious work. Say, well, we believe God, didn't we? And therefore we are being saved because we've done something which is right and proper. But this won't allow that. Any idea of merit arising out of the fact that you held out an empty hand and God filled it is set aside. Uh, just in, in case you may not have come across this, although some of you know it already, Galatians 3, the first verse, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? The words evidently set forth literally refer to putting a poster on the wall. And... Uh, we are not making an anachronism. There are still in our possession, in some of our museums, remnants of posters that were actually stuck on the walls in ancient Rome. And one of them reads, So-and-so is a good man, vote for him. Well, said the apostle, I have placarded. That is to say, he didn't mince matters. He didn't make it a sort of a wonderful poem. He went straight at it. Crucifixion the cross. Now, this epistle to the Galatians is also of use in this sense, that it makes a link between the testimony of Peter and the testimony of Paul. Because this is the only epistle, I, I speak from memory, the only epistle which Paul refers to the tree. Now, if you'll search Peter's writings and Peter's speeches, he never mentions once the word cross. Now, that comes as a a surprise to some folks. He always says that Christ was hanged upon a tree. The reason is he was speaking to Hebrews who knew that hanging on a tree was capital punishment under the curse of the law. So it says in Galatians 3, uh, verse 10, For as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them and then presently um, verse 13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree so here we get the Jew under the law and the Gentile who was never under the law finding a meeting place at the cross of Christ it settles both accounts settles them righteously and let's thank God for that but here we're thinking more now today of the emphasis in the scriptures. This is only a sample 
that salvation is by faith. Now, we provide those of you who read these, uh, listen to these tapes with um, the outlines, um, but I've sketched on the blackboard in this chapel this evening something which I'm sure you could all visualise, even though you may not be able to be craftsmen and artists. You've seen that huge gantry with a crane on the top and a great building going on and the crane coming down, the chain coming down and lifting up a block of stone and taking it up and so on. And so I want to use that as an illustration for a moment. What is it that lifts that stone? Well, we'll start right at the bottom. There's the stone already and there is the dangling chain or cable of the crane and there is a gigantic hook well, you say, if that hook can't stand the weight, it'll never move. Right. So you could say, the hook lifted the stone. But then supposing something went wrong with the cable or the chain to which the hook is attached. Or, well, then you say, the stone was lifted by the hook and the chain. Well, that goes up over this huge arm of the crane and down to a drum in the machine that's at the top of the crane. Supposing there's no power up there. It's been cut off because the electricians have gone on strike. Well, you've got all your gantry, you've got your cable, you've got your hook, and it's stationary. Oh, but there's no strike. Oh, but the man overslept himself, he's not up there. But you see, you can go on, you go on on ad lib. So every one of these items are instruments, but they're all related. And I'm not a philosopher able to <coughs> argue with regard to the ultimate relation of cause and effect. I'll put it this in a very simple way. The weather that we've had today was fixed by the weather that we had yesterday. You see that, don't you? When you're told that a certain depression is coming over the Atlantic, well, that depression was brought about by something that took place the day before. And that took place... that. So ultimately, the weather we have today originated in the first day of creation. That is to say, we speak of cause and effect. Now, the last thing that happens is we call the effect. And the thing just before it we call the cause. But if we go back one step, that which we call a cause was the effect of some other cause. And so it goes back. So we are saved by grace, we are saved by love, we are saved by hearing the word of God, we are saved because we can understand a language. You see, we must not limit it. All is a multiplication of causes and effects to bring about your salvation and mine. So I want to deliver the words saved by faith from any idea that faith could ever save you any more than the hook on the end of the chain, could argue to itself, well, it wasn't for me, they'd never lift this stone, true enough, but if it wasn't for all the apparatus behind it, they'd never lift it. So, let's be thankful that God has condescended to use the simplest possible approach to himself. Even the outside world, the great business world, and this chapel is surrounded by those who are dealing with millions of pounds in this vicinity, these hard-headed businessmen, I think that's a proper term, I'm, I'm sure I don't want to be uh, so disrespectful, 
who sit at these baths, great desks, and so on. One of the words that's very, very much in their mind is the word credit. And if you ask them about credit, they may not always immediately jump to it that it's from the Latin credo, I believe. The whole business world, friends, all to do with banks and insurances and whatnot, <coughs> is only possible because we believe one another. Now, of course, we're let down by one another. I remember many years ago, I had such a small amount of money that I didn't dare go to one of the big banks, so I chose Farrow's bank for the little man. And Farrow went broke and I lost it. Oh, we can believe other people that it will fail, but here's the point. God is represented in the Scriptures and Christ with him as utterly faithful. Utterly faithful. Well, that's where faith comes in. God has said to you and to me, no man can have dealings with his neighbour if he distrusts him. It will not be effective. So there's no merit in believing. In fact, a passage which uh, I've got on this little chart that you will be looking at at the very bottom, written in the first epistle of John, says this, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And if we believe not, we make God a liar. It doesn't say, oh, it's easy enough to believe man, but we can't believe God is so great. It's, just, it's more difficult to believe man because you know full well man's a wobbler. But it's easy to believe God if that's the sort of God he is that the scripture says. Utterly trustworthy. So, I'm trying to rob faith of any idea of merit, except an empty hand that is stretched out and God fills it out of his liberality. <coughs> well, now we'll come to the uh, book itself for a little bit of its teaching. And this time I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. <coughs> Verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And there are some who have been very, very distressed over this. They say, now, if faith is the gift of God, and he doesn't give it to me, well, then I can't believe, can I? And if I can't believe, I'm going to be condemned because I haven't believed. Well, this is a serious matter, isn't it? And yet, as we look at the surface of Scripture, let me read it again. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Well, you say, you've got to accept it. God is sovereign, and if he deals with one another like that. But I think we ought to give it a bit more serious consideration before we say, we'll pass by and turn to some other subject, don't you? So shall we... Listen for a moment to that dry subject which is so vital. The question of grammar. Now don't think I'm a grammarian. It's one of the things I hated at school and I haven't got much love for it now. But oh how valuable it is to be sure of yourself when you're translating God's word. So will you put up with it for a moment? And let me ask you to consider one or two things which are characteristic of the Greek language not characteristic of our own. I'm asking you to look particularly at the word that. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves. Well, you say that refers to faith. Right. In our English language. But now, when I come to the Greek language, I've got a language which is also almost mathematically constructed. I make do with the article the. I say the man, the woman, the book, the crowd, just one word. But if I start as I did after I forgot all the English grammar, I started trying to swat Greek and I was faced with about 24 different words for the word the. I thought, what a language! Ho, man, he, woman, toe, book, tau of the... Ma- oh, dear, you see? Ho, he, toe, tau, tees, tau, ton, teen, toe. Oh, goodness. But don't you see? I can't miss me way. If this is referring to a masculine word, it will be a masculine article. If it's referring to a feminine word, or you say, now what about this feminine word? Oh well, you know enough about French, don't you? You do know that marvellous statement about your aunt having pens down the garden, yes? Well, you have to remember that certain words are feminine in French. La table. Why the poor old table should be feminine, it's just a matter of the construction of the language. And so, we have a feminine word which is not a female. In the New Testament, Christ is the head of the church. Kephali is feminine. The head is feminine. But it doesn't say that Christ is a woman. So you see now, we've got a nicety of grammar to think of. Well now I look at this passage in the New Testament Greek. And I discover that the word that is neuter. And the word face is feminine. Well now Paul knew his language well enough not to go and write it so that he would get a bad mark if it was marked at school. He's precise in these terms. So that cannot refer to faith. That refers to something which is neuter. And faith is a feminine word. So when you look at it again, you say, you see what he's driving at? He's telling you that the whole grace by faith salvation project of God, the whole of it, all done up in a parcel, that way of salvation is the gift of God. Nothing to do with faith being the gift of God. You're called upon to believe and if you don't believe there's condemnation as a consequence. But the way of salvation, a grace by faith salvation, that is not of yourselves. That originated from God and so it goes on to explain. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The whole way of salvation has been designed by God that boasting himself should be entirely impossible. Well now, of course, this needs a good deal of care of handling and you might be uh, led to look into these things a bit more intimately. But time will not permit me to go further into that except to leave it with you as a very precious thought. But there's even more wonderful thought waiting for us in um, verse 8. Instead of arguing the point about this, whether faith is a gift of God, oh, if only we could have spotted this word gift. Would you say that now? That's all over the New Testament. The gift. Oh, yes. But this particular word is never used anywhere else in the New Testament 
except a sacrifice being offered to God. This is the one exception where God is coming to you with it. Now I think this is worth looking at, don't you? Because of the wonder of it. Will you look at these passages? I'm giving you now <coughs> this one particular word which is translated gift. Oh, there's three or four different words, so don't mix them up. This one particular word translated gift. Matthew, the second chapter, verse 11. We'll try to do it as quickly as we can, but as we are dealing with a most marvellous condescension of God, if it takes a little time, well, who's going to trouble over that? Matthew 2, verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now these men are worshipping. Worshipping. And as a consequence of their worshipping, they opened their treasures, and they presented unto him gifts. And they were sacrificial gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now would you believe it? It's that word that God has used when he gave you salvation. He has come, not waiting for you to come and bring a gift. He has come and brought you that sacrificial gift. It's almost breathtaking to think that God has used such a term. Let's get some more, shall we? The fifth chapter of Matthew. Verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... <coughs> There rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. It's the altar. You can't avoid it, you see. It was worshipped in the first place. It's a gift brought to the altar in the second place. Now the eighth chapter and the fourth verse. And Jesus saith unto him, See that thou tell no man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for the testimony unto them. You offer a gift to God because of your cleansing from your leprosy. Well, there are three references in Matthew. Those three references are enough to show us the sacredness of this word gift. Now, will you turn to four more in the epistle to the Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 1. Now who is he speaking about? A high priest. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained by men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. These gifts are the offerings of a priest. So we're still on the same ground, you see. And chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. It's an altar, it's a worshipping uh, company, it's a priest that's dealing with this. Chapter 9, verse 9. Speaking of the tabernacle which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. But they were the gifts offered by the priests in the tabernacle. And the last reference, chapter 11, 
verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. And the only other reference to this word is Ephesians chapter 2, that salvation is the gift of God to us. Now would you believe it? Every other reference is bringing a gift by a priest or a worshipper, a sacrificial gift to an altar. And this is the one exception that God has stooped and stood awaiting for us to bring our little puny gift in order to placate him or get salvation. He has stooped from heaven and he's given us a sacrificial gift. Do you understand when he says, and that not of yourselves, not of works lest any man should boast. That's our salvation, friends. A sheer sacrificial gift on the part of God. And it becomes luminous when you study the original and you look at the word that in relation to the subject. It's worth a moment or two, isn't it, friends, to get that well down in our heart and mind. Well now, let's look at one or two other phases of this work. How does faith come? Oh yes, I have an answer to that. Yes, we can, can't we? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now it doesn't say faith cometh by hearing and only hearing, because faith has come by reading. But the insistence here is reading. In the early days, the, the, book, the uh, opening chapter of the book of the Revelation, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear. One read it, and the other sat and listened. You see? Haven't you ever said this? You know, I read that, and it didn't mean anything to me. And then I heard somebody read it, and my! It it was living. I believe that's what God intends. Every one of us are not given exactly the same ability. To every one according to his several ability. And somebody can make the book live by reading it. And you, if you read it, you wouldn't know. Now, that's not, you need not be ashamed of that. You say, that's what God knows. So, whatever you do, friends, if you have a ministry, never put the reading of the word in a secondary place. Never say, oh, well, we have a few hymns and read the book and then we get down to our service. You say, you've got away from your service. The reading of the book may be the most important part, especially if it's read in the way that God intends. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And he leads on from that in chapter 10 of Romans, to who hath received our report. And the word report is just the word hearing, because that's what a report is, isn't it? Something you hear. So faith comes by reading, no, or by hearing, or by the book whichever way it is. There's a record that God has given us of the way of salvation. There is a a record given in the epistles and in the gospels of the person and the work that he did. And as that is read, and as that is received, faith grows. Not comes like a bolt from the blue. A conviction is produced. A conversion follows. And then a consecration as a result. But all the movement of this one great act of faith. 
Let's go a little bit further. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse um, 16 and 17. This is the emphasis upon faith. He says, in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. As it is written, he's referring to a very obscure minor prophet. And there are some congregations, friends, if the reader said, we will now turn to the prophet Habakkuk, you would see people looking from Genesis to Revelation to try to find it. A little three-chaptered prophecy. But Paul has gone to it. And in three epistles, he's divided it up into its three parts. Not mechanically, firstly, secondly, and thirdly by brethren, but he's done it. So should we look? He says in Galatians, Quoting this very passage, the just shall live by faith. And you remember when we read that chapter? The stress was upon faith, wasn't it? Well, let's twist it round now. Put it this way. By faith, the just shall live. Emphasize the word faith. Now we come to Romans. It's the just by faith that shall live because it's revealing righteousness. And then we get the third item. In the epistle to the Hebrews, you might turn to that one, chapter 10. This is the third reference to that one obscure text. And this time he's stressing the word live. You could see that he's not talking about doctrine in this end of this chapter 10. He said, uh, you had compassion of me in my bonds, verse 34. You took joyfully the spoiling of your goods knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance, cast not away therefore your confidence, yet a little while and he that shall come now. Verse 38. The just shall live by faith. Now there are some folks who are sure of this, that Paul never wrote the epistle of the Hebrews. They know all any amount of people who might have done it, but not Paul. Paul's the only man who takes this passage out of Habakkuk and divides it up in three. Galatians was written by Paul, the just shall live by faith. Romans was written by Paul, then it is revealed a righteousness, the righteous by faith shall live. And Hebrews, that Paul is not supposed to have written, he gives you the third bit. What a pity Paul didn't write it, isn't he? So he says, shall live, and if any man will draw back. Now that is just what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk doesn't teach justification by faith. He teaches that the just shall live by faith. And Paul is right when he stresses that here. <coughs> Habakkuk was disturbed. He did it in a day of violence. He offered prayers to God and got no answer. And there was apparent no interposition of God to save those who were suffering. And then he said, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'll stand upon my watch and I'll wait till he speaks to me. And then God spoke and he said, the vision is yet for an appointed time. Though it tarry, wait for it. 
For it shall speak and not lie, it's only the parent tarrying. And meanwhile, meanwhile, while you're waiting for God to answer, and you're waiting for his time, and you're perplexed, meanwhile, the just shall live by his faith. If anybody tells you that those who stress justification by faith without works are dangerous people because they do not stress the responsibility side, you take them back to Hebrews chapter 10 and read all those verses and then back to the prophet Habakkuk and leave it with them. For there's nothing so searching as the fact that God said to that man, Habakkuk, you may pray and I may not answer. You may see violence and I'll not make any deposition. But you know me, don't you? There's no tallying with God. You are the one that thinks it's tallying. I work according to my plans. And if you had a prayer meeting night and day for the rest of the year, I wouldn't alter my plans because you sit up all night and pray. That's not saying prayer isn't the place. True prayer doesn't worry God like the unjust, the unjust judge was worried. True prayer is, Lord, do as thou hast said and give me grace to wait patiently for the appointed time. Well now, there are other passages, but I think we'll just devote the time we have left to running through some well-known references just to make sure that we've got them before us. And a few of them will be found in John's Gospel. Because, you know, John particularly has told us in his Gospel that he wrote it to induce this faith. We'll come to that passage. We'll look at chapter 1, verse 12, first of all. The dispensational standpoint of John is different from the Gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew he came to his own and presented himself as king with a forerunner and so on. But John, he came to his own and his own received him not. He's at the other end of the story. But, we've discovered this in other aspects, that God has never left himself without witness. And there always has been and always will be to the end of time a remnant according to the election of grace. So although his own rejected him, as many as received him, to them gave he power or authority to become sons or children of God. Children of God is better with John. Son is usual with Paul. It's a distinction that you perhaps might keep in mind. This is life. Not inheritance, just life through his name. You become members of the family. Well, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That if we have believed him and believed in his name and what his name stands for, it's our passport into the family. Now, you may remember that on another occasion, I read a portion uh, from one of the back numbers of the Breathe Expositor dealing with the principle of adoption, that the passage in Ephesians when it says, uh, I bow my knees unto the Father of whom every family in heaven and earth is named, or the whole family, that that word family is the word patria. And the patricians were the ones who ransomed somebody from bondage, took them into their own gen, and they took the patrician's name. Oh, that puts you into the family in a true sense, doesn't it, friend? In a deeper sense than perhaps at first we thought. Well, then we look at another passage which I believe you would be able to quote from memory. John 3, 16. But what a verse it is. I suppose you do know of an evangelist who went to America and after he preached John 3, 16 every night for a fortnight, the deacons waited upon him 
And he said, well, have I all believed it yet? No. Well, I'm going to preach it again tonight, he said. Well, I don't know whether everybody could have done that. But there's a point, isn't there? What a depth and what a wealth in this verse which is so often quoted. For God so loved the world, and the bit that I will stress, in case you missed it, is the word so doesn't here mean greatness. You could translate it, God loved the world like this. And John picks that up in his epistle. Herein, like this, is love. See, like this. And in the fourth chapter, it is the word, he sat thus. He sat like this, upon a well. Nothing to do with greatness. God loved the world like this. How? Not by mere compassion, not by mere kindness, but by sending his own son. The sacrificial element coming into it again. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well then we turn the page to another text which has been used many times. John 5, <coughs> 24. John 5, 24. And when you have verily, verily in John's Gospel, as you do over and over again, it's a double amen. And it means, this is a faithful saying. When Paul wants to introduce it, he doesn't say verily, verily, he says, this is a faithful saying. And when you get Christ saying, verily, verily, it's a bit to remember. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, here it comes again, and as a consequence, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. And there's the other side. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So you pass from death unto life even now. Although you carry about with you all the evidences of mortality, yet if you belong to the high calling, which is the culmination of all this, your life is hid with Christ in God. But that's another story and we're getting near the end of our time. The other reference, chapter 8, 24, chapter 8, 24, is a very solemn one. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. If ye believe not that I am he. Let's get the last reference then, to be a little more clear. Chapter 20, 31. Having got near to the end of the Gospel, he looks back over what he's written. He says that there are many things which Jesus did and said which cannot be recorded. Verse 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ. If you believe not that I am he, now he was speaking to those who knew what that referred to. Now he's put it out larger. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The word Christ, of course, is in chapter 1 defined as the Messiah. And the Messiah is God's anointed. And God's anointed in the Old Testament is a prophet, a priest, and a king. If you believe that Jesus is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king, with all that those terms mean, You've got everlasting life. Life through his name. Well then, in Romans the first chapter, 
and the 16th verse, which we've partly referred to, there is a reference to this salvation, which is by faith. He is telling them that he's planned many times to visit them at Rome, but has been hindered. See, the Apostle could make his plans, but they're always subservient. And so, writing to the Corinthians, he said, Oh, I know, I know, I told you I was coming to visit you. And he said, Don't you think that my word is yea, yea, and nay, nay, when I'm making me plans? Because God may alter them. But on the other hand, don't think that my message is yea, yea, and nay, nay, for that remains the same whatever happens. God doesn't change. So just be prepared, friends, when you make your plans, that they don't turn out. Let God have a word in them. So he says, oh, I know. But he said, I I want you to remember, I'm not holding back from coming to Rome and saying, oh, I don't think I can go to Rome and preach this gospel. It would upset them to tell the Romans that they were equally needing a saviour like these poor wretches here. Oh, he said, I'm debtor both to the Greeks. They were the wise ones and the barbarians. See, the Greeks divided the world up into two classes, the Greeks and the other lot, the wise and the barbarians. To the wise and the unwise. He says, so much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Well, what's your confidence, Paul? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I think he means, means more than a negative. Because sometimes you put a thing in a negative to make it positive. Of course, you don't speak slang, do you? Oh, no. So if you said to a child who came to the party uh, last week, did you enjoy yourself? And he says, not half. You know, say, oh, and, uh, what do you mean by that half? I'm so sorry. You see? To diminish it was only to magnify it. He says, not ashamed. I should think I was not unwilling to die for it. But in leave it as it stands, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Here's his answer. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone to believe it. Now, sometimes we say in our slipshod way, we don't expect miracles today. Well, you want to watch a step over your words, friends. We don't expect evidential miracles today. We walk by faith and not by sight. I suppose none of you to whom I'm speaking have ever seen anybody raised from the dead. I suppose you've never seen a person miraculously restored from blindness to full sight. No. And I don't think you ever will in this life. But they're not the only miracles, friends. There's one miracle goes on every time a sinner is converted and brought to Christ. Don't forget that miracle, will you? If it's a wonderful miracle to raise a person from physical death, what about passing from death unto life in the spiritual sense? If it's a wonderful miracle to open the eyes of a man born blind, what about opening the eyes of your understanding to see the glorious truth of the mystery? Don't underestimate. So he says, this word power, is not the word authority that we get sometimes so translated. This is the identical word used and translated by the word miracle. Miracle. I'm going to put it there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the miracle of God. The miracle of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it. And then we have in chapter 3, verse 22, Chapter 3, verse 22. Oh, he says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, in gathering the whole of the Old Testament to focus upon it. 
even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Notice the two expressions of faith. Your faith in Christ. But his faith means his utter trustworthiness and faithfulness. For you see, it's no good believing someone who is not trustworthy. You'll sink just the same. So your faith only saves you because it's anchored to him. So we have the two. We are we have this righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. So it's not our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the faith of Christ. And we sometimes forget that if he couldn't be spoken of as being utterly faithful, all our witness and all our gospel preaching and all our hopes are in vain. And the last reference, chapter 4, verse 5, takes us back to the chapter we had before us in our last study. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Well, we've done again, as best we may in our time, to give some idea of this great salvation. And do not let it be soon forgotten that faith, or the way of salvation, the grace by faith salvation, is the gift of God. The gift that you would expect only God to receive. And he didn't use that word of his own people Israel. He used it of us poor outside Gentiles. That he uses the word that the three or the kings use when they worship the infant Christ. He used the word when the high priest went into the holiest of all with the gifts and sacrifices. He's come out like that to you and me. So I pray that those of us who have believed in many, uh, for many years and have rejoiced in the consciousness of salvation may say, well, I'm glad I was at that meeting this evening. It's an old, old story. But how good it is to have it over and over again. For that, of course, is not vain repetition.